Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Jesse Walker is joining me from Baltimore. He is the books editor at Reason Magazine. He's the author of Rebels on the Air and United States of Paranoia, which we'll be discussing at length. So thanks so much for uh, making the time to talk to me. Uh, my pleasure. So there are many times in the past several years that your book, The United States of Paranoia, which I probably read, I don't know if I mean pre-Trump era, because it came out in 2013. Am I right about that? That's right. So it, you know, it's um, it's a book I read kind of before the latest <laughs> period of, of madness in American politics, but it's uh, come back to me many times in recent years. And it's been one of the most useful resources for just trying to historicize and contextualize some of what's been going on. So we'll be, um, we'll be kind of digging back into that and I'll be trying to um, get some of your thoughts about the last few years and how the, the arguments you developed there have, have sort of held up. I would say they've held up very well, um, but if there's anything that you'd, um, that you'd add or modify, Beyond that, we'll be talking about the new Adam Curtis documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Head, which picked up many of these themes and, and really uh, resonated with, with some of what you brought up in the book. So I'm going to start off with a quote from the United States of Paranoia, which I think embodies at least part of the, the central thesis, if not all of it. So here's the quote. Pundits tend to write off political paranoia as a feature of the fringe, a disorder that occasionally flares up until the sober center can put out the flames. They're wrong. The fear of conspiracies has been a potent force across the political spectrum, from the colonial era to the present, in the establishment as well as the extremes. They've been popular not just with dissenters and nonconformists, but with individuals and institutions at the center of power. They're not simply a colorful historical byway. They're at the country's core. So this is a, a passage that's come back to me a number of times over the past several years. And I think the most recent time was the, the Capitol riot and its aftermath on January 6th, which is or is at least being presented and understood as a watershed event and certainly did bring about a, a significant political pivot in various ways. And it seems to me that it it's potentially quite a... Um, and you know we'll see what happens, but potentially quite a generative event for both of the the sort of dimensions of parent of political paranoia that you bring up, that of the fringes, but also that of the the center or the establishment. So I'm wondering if you see it that way too, um, and perhaps you know thinking about the Capitol riot, do you see um, a shift in these kinds of narratives coming out of that, or do you see more continuity? Um, so I think we're still at that moment where things can go in different directions in terms of what interpretations take hold. Um, I, I, I feel a bit like um, this conversation is reminding me a bit about an interview I did slightly after the 2016 election when someone asked me, you know, what conspiracy theories are you seeing starting to emerge? And this was about a couple days before everyone started going wild about Russia. Um, and I said, well, I... I wonder if this Russia thing that people were talking about in the campaign will take off, but I'm not seeing much yet. And then, of course, the floodgates open. Um, 
So, and with the Capitol riot, it's obvious a lot of the reactions are are already underway, but it's not clear to me um, what the long-term impact on the right um, of that is, is going to be. Um, and in part, that's because so much of what I'm watching, I'm watching on social media, and social media has this flattening effect where you're not always sure if you're seeing one tiny circle of people or, or, or a big mass, right? It, it takes a while for... So, I, I mean, I remember I tweeted out a story when, when it turned out that the guy photographed with zip ties had, in fact, picked them up. I mean, this, for those of you who, um, when this recording is listened to 50 years from now and people wonder what we're talking about, um, there was uh, a moment when people started saying this was more, um, more of a threat than you might have thought. Um, here is this photograph of someone um, with zip cuffs. Clearly, he had it was going in with mind with some sort of hostage um, plan. Um, otherwise, why would he have brought them? And then the guy claimed he picked them up and just saw them lying around and picked them up. And it turned out he was telling the truth. There was video of him picking it up. Um, he was wearing a body cam, and the prosecutor said, "Where in, in their charging documents, you know, said this is what happened." Um, so I. Um, just tweeted out a story. I didn't make any commentary on it because it's the sort of thing where you don't even want to try to make an argument on, on Twitter. Um, but I just sort of tweeted out, um, uh, here's an update on this, you know, here's, you know, as one does. Um, and it was interesting, like the two sorts of um, uh, sort of point missing um, response, because on the one hand, there are a number of people, including at least one friend of mine, our, our online friend, who are like, well, well, so what? You know, the guy, is this, this not, is that better for this guy? And I say, it's not, the guy is still going to go to jail. You know, it's just that this speaks to a piece of evidence in terms of what was actually a likely outcome of, of the riot. You know, a lot of people's interpretation, we're putting a lot of interpretive um, weight on this photograph. So now you've got to recalibrate things. Um and but and then the other was there were some people saying, aha, you see, there was no riot. You're breaking windows and fighting with cops. I think by definition, there's a riot. Um, but it was it was clear that there were people who really there were these were two groups of people that were really attached to a particular narrative. Um, and they just wanted to find some way to fit this new bit of data um, into one of those two narratives. Although to me, oh, there's a lot that's still unclear um, about what actually happened at the riot. It's one reason why I haven't been making a whole lot of, you know, public interpretive statements about it. Um, it I mean, there's the, there's this whole debate about whether it was terrorism. Um, now, I think it's inane to call a riot terrorism. I, I and I, I felt the same way during, you know, the the summer of 2020 when people were saying Antifa riots and all that. It's, I mean, I like, well, Antifa riots fine. I mean, people were saying like Antifa terrorism and, and so on. Um, I am fine with saying that the person who planted pipe bombs at the DNC and RNC, whoever that was, that, that seems like a terrorist act. And I think it plausible that some people within that riot may have had terrorist intentions. Um, we don't know. We're seeing the accusations that prosecutors are making. We're waiting for some pushback, you know. So it's very, um, it's not clear to me how much of this, um, it's pretty clear to me how the sort of centrist establishment is going to treat this and that, you know, we're seeing people call for a new domestic terror law. Um, you know, that we have ideas going around about what this should mean about surveillance, about deplatforming. That seems pretty clear what's going on, but it's not clear to me to what extent the organized right is going to be um, going along with some of that versus um, 
sort of moving into a defensive crouch. Um, and, you know, it, it, this could sort of play out the way the Russiagate thing did, and it could play out in a different way. Um, a lot of what I'm sort of paying, trying to pay attention to myself has to do with, you know, how that shakes out. Um, I don't know if that answered your question or if I just yeah. wound up saying some things out loud I haven't said out loud yet. Um, no, and it, it's, it brings me to another thing I've been thinking about, which is on one level, this is, um, you know, it's incredible how documented this event was, right, in mm -hmm. terms of all the different videos that were taken of it. Um, and yet, in a way, it almost seems as if that's amplified the uncertainty, right, that, that um, this, you know, seeming um, far greater source of immediate evidence of the of what happened um, has, instead of kind of allowing us to establish uh, some kind of clear, consistent narrative has instead created this proliferation of competing narratives about it. And I, I mean, I don't know if this is, is your experience, but I mean, um, I thought the zip tie example that you brought up is, is one instance of it. I mean, I think with that, okay, we have like, with that particular fact, we, we have something that's been right. clearly established, but it, you know, there's such a contestation over what, what, you know, what the nature of the, the event was, what the aims of the protesters were, what the, Degree well, and, and there's an assumption. Mm -hmm. There's an assumption that the protesters all had the same aims, which is clearly not true. And I, right. I should say, there's an assumption. Obviously, lots of people are, you know, smart enough not to make that assumption. But rhetorically, a lot of people kind of fall into this. Um, certainly, I mean, the dumbest example was I don't remember which um, prominent person. I don't even remember if it was a pundit or an official who said that they should charge everyone there with the felony murder rule, which, I mean, to me, the felony murder law is itself barbaric and should not exist. Um, and so I, I, even if I thought he had a, a legal case, that would be, um, I would be against it. But I, I think that was, uh, you know, I, I, even setting that aside, you know, clearly um, people were there for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things to me about the Capitol riot is I think a lot of the activity on what is being described as the far right, and I will call it that, although um, some things that are being grouped into it do not fit that as well as they could. I mean, some of the Boogaloo folks, even some of the Q folks uh, um, are a little bit harder to classify. Um, but a lot of that is, I mean, there's this kind of this sort of centripetal flying off and it was very unusual for them all to be there um, for one reason, and that one reason being the defense of a politician. Um, and a lot of the folks who have anticipated a civil war, they tend to see all these, I mean, these folks on the right as being um, part of one vast force. And the people on the, on the right who talk about a civil war do the same for the left. They can't tell the difference between Joe Biden and, and, and Antifa, which is, again, you know, absurd to conflate those. Um, and to me, it's more like there is this one moment of configuration um, where they actually did, against a lot, sort of fall in behind um, uh, one political leader um, and this kind of absurd, um, you know, stop the seal, uh, stop the steal uh, conspiracy theory. But now I think they're starting to disperse again. Um, and it's being helped along by the fact that so many of these groups are now convinced that their, you know, their comrades are actually feds. And in some cases, that's true. Um, but even even if that weren't the case, um, 
you know, I mean, Donald Trump is more interested in, in raising money than raising a warlord army. Um, and so even if even if he were so he's not even really trying to, um, you know, raise it kind of for us. And even if he were, it would be pretty difficult. It's becoming clear to me that even some of the folks who were there, although this was clearly a pro-Trump protest, had other agendas. Um, some of the Boogaloo folks who um, who uh, despise Trump um, were nonetheless like hoping to, um, you know, sort of they torn the uh, some of that activity in their direction. Although I'm not sure how many of them were actually there at the Capitol. Um, I've been talking with I, I shouldn't. I, this is for something I'm working on that I'm not done with yet. Um, so I'll I'll be cagey about some of the details. But I've been interviewing someone who was there. Um, and he says not in the Capitol. Um, he says he was on the steps. Um, the videos of his that I've seen were outside. Um, the FBI is going to be talking with him soon, and we'll see if they have a different view on on what's been going on. Um, but I mean, he said, I mean, his big um, uh, rationale was COVID stuff. He's pro-Trump, and he says, well, I think he probably did steal the election. Um, but it he was, uh, but I mean, his that was sort of almost beside the um, the point for uh, for him in terms of like what was really motivating him um, was his concern. I mean, the lockdowns, and then beyond that, some of his more uh, fringy concerns about, um, you know, vaccines and so on. So there were, I mean, fringy in a sense and much less popular and, and harder to support. Um, and, uh, and of course, when I asked him to describe the mood, he was like, I was like Woodstock, you know, we were out there dancing in the street, having a good time. Um, and, uh, of course he claims that the riot was all staged. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, take all that with all those mounds of salt you want. But it does speak to the the fact that a lot of the folks who were outside the Capitol um, had a different sense of why they were there and so on than the folks who are inside. And of course, one of my favorite photographs from that day was the guy who um, set up a concession stand in the middle of the protest right outside um, the Capitol. Um, it reminded me of when I was tr covering Trump rallies back in 2016. And I found some of the most fun interviews were to the vendors, um, the guys selling T-shirts and so on, some of whom were pro-Trump, some of whom claimed to be pro-Trump, and I didn't believe them for a moment. Um, some of whom were pretty uh, overt about how mercenary they were. I, there's like one guy says, yeah, I was I was trying to sell, you know, some stuff at the Hillary rallies. And I don't know, remember who else, Jeb or whatever, but this is the only stuff that sells. So I'm just focusing on Trump now. And, you know, it, there's this kind of, you know, carnival uh, spirit with a lot of people trying to make a buck, which which is so much of politics. So where I'm going with all this, I, I've gone off on a long tangent, I'm going to try to steer it back, is that um, what was sort of seen as the kind of, this is the opening shots in an insurrection. I mean, and what was sort of, so many people had spent um, the, uh, at that point, um, two months since the election fearing, actually before the election, because there were people who thought there was going to be militia violence, you know, on the election, on election day itself. This was their, um, this was what they were expecting. Um, and they, they put all this weight on it. And to me, it's, it's obviously a really significant event, but I don't, I see people spiraling off into different directions, moving back towards that kind of uh, free-floating soup uh, that we sort of see when we go online and see all the micro factions interacting with one another. Um, and it's it's not obvious to me, like, I mean, it could congeal again around something, um, but if it does, it's more much more likely to be something like similar to COVID and not to this kind of um, 
uh, post-election things because this kind of activity, this kind of politics um, doesn't usually manifest around um, electoral loyalties. Or when it does, it's in the sense of people getting really enthusiastic about um, a minor candidate, you know, the Ron Paul, Tulsi Gabbard, Marianne Williamson, the 2016 version of Bernie Sanders, you know, and it's uh, so many people who write about this, like want to put everything into a red versus blue um, um, uh, paradigm narrative. And, and it's uh, it usually uh, to me, what's so unusual about this is that it actually for a day they were out there um, uh uh, to defend uh, the candidate of the Republican Party, and even then, the person they were most mad at were the, was the vice presidential candidate of the Republican Party. Um, so even then, some of the most intense conflict was within a party rather than between the parties. Uh, I I think I covered what you asked in there. I hope. Yeah, I I, I was curious um, since something you've written about in the past, including in the United States of Paranoia, is the the militia movement in the nineties that, um, you know, grew, but also became central to sort of media anxieties and obviously was, um, heavily covered in part because of the Oklahoma city bombing. I'm just curious. I've, I've often felt there's a great amnesia about that, uh, that moment and what it, what it might signify for today. And I've also um, just been interested because there, you know, there has there have been these groups in recent years that have served a somewhat similar function in the popular imagination. Um, so I'm curious what you think about uh, what the lessons of that moment are for today, and perhaps how it both um, anticipates but also maybe diverges from what we've seen in more recent years, both in terms of these movements themselves, but also in terms of the way they've been represented and covered. Yeah. So the Oklahoma city bombing, um, was kind of, uh, people forget the extent to which it changed the course of sort of Clinton versus Gingrich politics in the mid nineties. Um, and a lot of the time people spend more time focused on things like the government shutdown, which back then seemed novel. (laughs) <laughs> the government would shut down for for uh, a little bit of time. Um, I mean, shut down in quotes because, of course, you know, it's not like they stopped arresting people. Um, and uh, but in fact, I mean, the Oklahoma City bombing was this moment when people were able to say, "Hey, this is this is the extremism you're playing with. Um, this is what your quote unquote anti-government rhetoric leads to." Um, you should distinguish. Uh, you should distance yourself from this. Uh, there were stories about, um, you know, the uh, the militia movements. I mean, the militia movement was not behind the Oklahoma City bombing. I should stress, Timothy McVeigh was not a member of a militia. They got kind of conflated. Um, uh, the Nichols brothers. They went to a militia meeting, and by their account, uh, I don't remember offhand whose account it was. I could look it up in the book. Were kicked out um, for being obnoxious. Um, but nonetheless, it was associated in the public mind with the militia movement. And then the, there were stories about the militia movement's friends in Congress. And there were some folks in Congress who had, you know, some sort of militia associations, like Steve Stockman in Texas. Um, but there was also um, a sort of tendency to. Um, you know, associate particular issues with, you know, it sounds like what a militiaman would do. There was a funny moment um, in uh, around the time of the sort of Tea Party explosion about a decade and a half later, 
where um, a reporter wrote a piece in, I think, Newsweek. It was either Time or Newsweek, uh, which was the big thesis was that these um, these causes that once were relegated to the militia extremes are now finding a home in the Republican Party in this age of the Tea Party. And that exact same reporter had for the other News Weekly in the mid 90s written a story about, oh, these militia people, they're just repeating things that sound like what's been coming out of Congress. So the sort of amnesia uh, effect on, on terms of someone's own work could really, um, but, but this has always been something that people do in, um, in politics, you uh, you try to associate um, your opponent with someone who seems scary um, on the fringes. I mean, obviously Trump was doing that with the Antifa, Antifa, however you like the pronunciation's been evolving um, stuff last year. Um, you know, the right did it with rioters at the end of the '60s. The uh, Democrats did it with you know Birchers and Minutemen in the early '60s. Of course, it's at the heart of the McCarthy era, most famously. Um, so that's not novel in itself, but it's um, but it it's forgotten how much that played into the Oklahoma City bombing. Now, the Oklahoma City bombing is different from the Capitol riot in a couple of important ways. Um, one is in terms of the damage it did; it was much worse. I mean, lots of civilians were killed, including children. It, it's a uh, it was tragic on a scale that doesn't compare remotely to the Capitol riot. Um, the flip side is, you know, the cause was an actual, I mean, Timothy McVeigh had, a, I'm not going to endorse the man's worldview, you know, reading the Turner Diaries and so on, but his big animating impulse was Waco, which was a genuine um, uh, act of misbehavior by the federal government, um, which contrasts with, you know, the, this thing being a, basically a, a fantasy about what happened in the election. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think any of the actual degree of fraud that or irregularities that people might find around the country in 2020 add up to anything near what it would take to actually tip the election to Trump instead of Biden. So it was um, so the Capitol um, riot was in two ways um, less weighty. You know, I mean, they were rioting for something dumber and they didn't. Although, I mean, the symbolic um you know, impact of it happening in the U.S. Capitol. Obviously, that affects how people respond to it. But ultimately, it's um, it's not the same as, you know, blowing up a building with a lot of people in it. Um, so you asked the other part of your question was you asked about how this sort of um, um, sort of comparing the militia um, 90s to the way some of these um, groups have been. I guess you were sort of looking at like the whole Trump era. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking of, you know, the Proud Boys, the yeah. Oath Keepers, Boogaloo, these yeah. groups that have, again, you know, perhaps there are some uh, actual similarities. And then certainly in the way that they've been portrayed and the kind of role they've served in the narrative, there's been a, a kind of revival of many of the themes that I remember from yeah, and, and the it's, 90s. It's, I mean, part of my argument has to do, I should say, it's not just about the way these things were used rhetorically, it has to do with the differences between the militia right and um, what we would now say the alt-right, although that's anachronistic in the 90s, you know, the sort of white nationalist, um, clan type, but you know, the order, those sorts of groups. Um, there is an overlap because, you know, these milieus always overlap in some way or the other and or another, but they're very different. I mean, the Proud Boys are not a militia organization. And the sorts of comments I made about what militias are likely to do or not do, or 
um, the ways that a lot of them, I mean, work, you know, police violence against African-Americans into their critiques. Um, that, that doesn't necessarily apply to, I don't think that applies at all to the, to the Proud Boys. Um, I don't think it applies at all to um, white nationalist violence. Um, I, I mean, I'm not using white nationalists as a sort of catch-all term the way people do in Twitter. I mean, actual, you know, white nationalists. Um, it's who, um, I, 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 it's uh, a lot of the, I, I mean, I, there was a couple of reader comments about what I feel differently about, um, you know, what I said about the militias in light of, and they point to some things that have happened in the last few years. And and I would say, you know, part of my argument is that those people you're pointing to are different from the militias. Now, there is a pretty strong sense in which, you know, the Boogaloo movement is um, a descent, is, or at least part of it, because that's a Boogaloo is more a meme than a movement. And you've got at least two different movements that are entirely different that are using some of the same memes. You've got um, people, you do have Boogaloo folks who are, you know, white nationalists or, or worse. I mean, you know, stretching out towards, um, you know, the sort of this, this sort of fascist realm and who have had this sort of accelerationist desire for a race war. And you also have um, this um, more libertarian, I mean, almost sort of ANCAP, Antifa sort of um, Boogaloo thing that, um, supports Black Lives Matter go out of their way to um, be, uh, you know, have trans friendly rhetoric. I mean, it's not some people have said, well, they just are interested in Black Lives Matter because of the um, the police, um, because it's another sort of anti police or anti police abuse movement. And but the fact is, they a lot of these folks are actually going out of their way to um, um, have sort of inclusive rhetoric towards, you know, sexual minorities and racial minorities and so on. Um, and have, um, and have some places where like the, um, uh, last year where the police said, let's get, you know, the protesters on this side of the street and the counter protesters on the other side of the street, because they don't want brawls to break out. So a lot of these Boogaloo folks have gone and they've stood next to the Antifa people. Um, and a lot of those folks have, have sort of roots in that, um, kind of militia slash patriot, um, movement, but they've taken it in, um, uh, it, it, it's it's almost like they've they've taken sort of the libertarian strain in that, and 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 gone even even further. The Oath Keepers also come out of that direction, although they have changed so much over the last. I'm I've been waiting for someone to. Um, if you're listening to this and you want to do a hit piece on me ever, I dig up what I wrote about the Oath Keepers in 2010, um, because the organization has changed a lot since then in terms of its main um, tactics. Um, it's a uh, their original idea was that we were, um, uh, here's a series of orders that we won't obey. We are obeying our oath to the constitution. And if we are told to do these different things, we will lay down our arms and not enforce them. Um, which is kind of, it's a very Gene Sharp kind of idea. This is like when the, they were not, I was, I think the only person who wrote about them, who like put them in the context of talking about militant um, nonviolent struggle. Um, but since like one of my other sort of interest, things that I've written about as a journalist uh, over the years have been um, the sort of uh, civic resistance um, movements um, and, and the way they uh, sort of the, the effort to build sort of like a nonviolence international um, and, and so on. Um, I recognized this and I thought it was uh, interesting that this was this was their core idea. Um, and this was, uh, I mean, a lot of they tended to be armed folks, but the um, the uh there i found it very plausible that someone could who was tended towards nonviolence could get involved with the oath keeper i mean tended towards violence could get involved in the oath keepers 
and um, without using any sort of rhetoric or ideology of pacifism being drawn in this nonviolent direction. Well, that's, I mean, over the course of the teens. Um, now, first of all, even then it was clear a lot of people who joined the group or at least got into their discussions online um, had other ideas. Um, and that's it also showed up in my coverage. But over the course of the teens, more and more of the Oath Keepers sort of shifted so that their big thing was providing security. Um, and sometimes, I mean, it, sometimes it was like, I, I kind of sympathize with what you're doing in terms of providing security. Other times it's like you're lining up with groups. I find, you know, repellent, even if you say you're just there to be um, peacekeeping or whatever. Um, but it was still, um, there was a major shift in tactics there. And I think that um, paved the way in a, in a lot of respects for um, what we've seen. In, I mean, last year, um, Stuart Rhodes, who's the founder of the Oath Keepers, was calling on um, Donald Trump to declare what was happening in Seattle and Portland an insurrection and, you know, basically uh, send in, you know, the armed crackdown. And I remember, like, you know, I think I wrote somewhere, like, I, I, I sure hope when the people he sends in, like, uh, remembers his constitutional oath and refuses to do this. It was, it was such a complete um, uh, 180 on uh, what the Oath Keepers had originally stood for. Now, the Oath Keepers who are being challenged, who are being charged in, um, for their role in the Capitol riot, they were acting independently of the organization and they were very explicit about this. I mean, there was a rhetoric of like, Rhodes won't, Stuart Rhodes won't do this, but we will. It's unclear to me to what extent, uh, to what what they were actually out to do and I'll be interested in seeing um, how the um, how the uh, the court case plays out. Um, but it's, it, my, my up, the upshot of that is, you know, the Oath Keepers, unlike a lot of these alt-right groups are kind of rooted in that, although they're not a militia themselves in that kind of militia world, but they have shifted a lot um, since then. One other thing, I, I'm sorry, I, I want to throw in this point too. I wrote a story about this a year or two ago. Um, border militias are, are a thing as well. Um, and this is sort of a switch back and forth we've seen, and this really kind of plays into another one of my arguments in the United States of Paranoia. Um, after 9-11, I mean, the 90s um, uh, uh, militia movement was sort of diminishing anyway after Bush was elected, just because so much of it was about fears of gun confiscation, and they didn't see Bush as likely to do that. Um, but then after 9-11, a whole bunch of the kind of, um, of uh, you know, uh, the, the mental mind space um, that previously had been sort of the sort of the paramilitary right, that previous that since the end of the Cold War had been sort of fearing the enemy above the, uh, the, the, the federal government, the large corporate interests they saw as interlocking with the U.S. government, you know, globalists, et cetera, et cetera, were, was now um, focused on the enemy outside again. Um, and this really kind of opened the door. In some cases, like literally in terms of founders of the Minutemen, um, what was motivating them towards... Um, towards wanting to go down and guard against the border. There was this close association between their fears of Mexicans and, you know, fear of terrorism. Um, and they saw this as part of that struggle. Um, and even though these people um, very often did not like Bush at all because they saw him as weak on immigration, um, they were part of that post 9-11 moment um, and uh, wanting to sort of shift the shift their guns towards the external enemy again. The, with the Tea Party, um, era, a lot of those, you know, the paramilitary rights energy was again towards the enemy above. 
And recently it's been kind of tricky because Trump scrambled everything. A lot of these people felt like they had a friend in the White House, which they never had or before, or at least it had been a very long time. Um, and um, others did not. I mean, others distrusted him. Um, and so you had this kind of, you had this sort of rise in sort of broader um, paramilitary activity again, not necessarily by militia groups, but by kind of groups in the, the paramilitary right. And you also had um, so you had like a minority. I don't want to say this is super um, um, super common that were skeptical of that. You had um, Ammon Bundy, um, uh, who was you know for reasons related to both his politics and his you know Mormon um, faith, you know, being very pro-immigrant um, and pro-BLM in in his case. Um, and he's also sort of moved towards prison abolition and a lot of things that people don't recognize. Um, and being critical of the folks who were uh, marching on the border and getting a lot of pushback. I don't want, and also a lot of the Boogaloo people have been abolish ICE, you know? So, I mean, again, this kind of goes back to my argument about this being um, flinging off in different directions and it, it being, um, if, you know, if we are heading towards, you know, kind of years of lead situations, it doesn't look like, which we, I'm not predicting, it does not look like the American Civil War. It looks more like the kind of violence of the 60s and 70s, the 1960s and 70s, um, where it's like all these, you know, sort of freelancers with their own factions going in different directions. So I think we're we're probably familiar with the notion of, I mean, one way of thinking about paranoia is as a an attempt to convert a, a sort of chaotic array of events and tendencies into some kind of unified narrative with a clear kind of centralized agency. So, I, you know, people are familiar with that as a way of thinking about, you know, anti-government paranoia or paranoia about um, whatever globalism or something like that, that, you know, you're, you're looking at the whole panorama of complicated events and trying to create some kind of sense-making narrative. And, you know, based on what you've just been discussing, we can also see how it goes the other way, right? How, you know, these movements are extremely varied and eclectic and often in conflict with one another. But what what people seem to do is is try to plug them into a, a sort of single narrative that would see them as relatively unified um, in, in a way that they actually aren't. Um, so in other words, it, it's an instance of how this kind of um, this, uh, you know, the paranoia that we associate with those movements in terms of how they think about uh, think about government or, um, you know, schemes for world government or whatever is actually mirrored by the types of narratives that are that are spun about them yeah. in sort of mainstream media coverage. So, I mean, I think this ties into a, a couple things. I did want to bring up um, your critique of what's still an influential account of paranoia, which is Hofstadter's paranoid style. Yeah. But I did first want to pause on a sort of more basic question that I sometimes struggle with, which is paranoia itself often seems like a very vexing term to me. Yeah. Because I think part of the reason for this is that it it pathologizes a certain style of thinking, but um, the pathologizing, the, the sort of adequacy or appropriateness of the pathologizing seems to depend on external events. So I think of like this, the Martha Mitchell phenomenon where, um, you know, you had John Mitchell's 
wife who was sort of vaguely aware of what was going on with Watergate. And so when, but when she described this to a psychiatrist, he thought that she was kind of losing her mind. Right. And so then it turned out that she was simply describing what she was observing, but, but a sort of, you know, paranoid ideation had, was attributed to her. So, um, so this, and, you know, another example that I think of a lot is, um, I mean, which is where it gets really, one example of where it gets really complicated is something like Pro, where you had um, the FBI actually doing things that were aimed to make their targets seem paranoid to other people, right? So they were harassing them, tapping their phones and things like that, partly so that their targets would describe these experiences to other people and the other people would regard them as losing their minds. Right. Um, so I, I, and another thing that ties into some of what we've been discussing is, you know, if, if you think back to the nineties moment, on one hand, we have a kind of proliferation of, of this kind of, um, anti-globalist paranoia and paranoia about gun rights being taken away and so on. That's, that's animating the various factions of the militia movement. And then on the other hand, we have the paranoia that's driving, the federal government to do things like Waco and Ruby Ridge. Yeah. Um, and and, and so. for that matter, to do COINTELPRO, which right, exactly. was itself <laughs> built on the notion that, uh, or at least initially built on the notion um, that a lot of these movements were centrally directed from Moscow. Right, um, right. Although that, then, then they start doing other COINTELPROs that weren't based on that idea. But yeah. Um, so I, I guess I just find it, um, what I find vexing about it is partly this, this way that um, the term itself seems to make assumptions about the reality or unreality of the phenomena that the, the people it's being attributed to are describing. But in fact, in most of the cases that we're discussing, there's a great ambiguity there. Yeah, um, um, I, and I, dis- I, I struggled with how, whether or not to use the word, and I disclaim the pathologizing use of it in, at the beginning of my book, um, but I was aware, you know, that I'm still using it. Um, and I basically decided, I mean, which was interesting because I had um, one of my criticisms of Hofstetter had traditionally been that although he disclaims the idea that he's making a, a diagnosis, it does feel like he's just put a, a huge swath of the country on the therapist's couch. Um, uh, but I just sort of felt like, number one, there was not a better word. Um, I thought about conspiracism and it just didn't. It, it didn't have the same kind of weight to it. And also that in its own way is pathologizing. Um, I mean, I, I will sometimes say conspiracist in reference to particular kinds of thinking, but in terms of um, sort of setting it up as like an object of, uh, I mean, it's not an ism is, the, is really the thing, you know, it's, it's across the board. So what I do in the book is I say, look, I'm not, I'm using this colloquially, not in a, in a professional sense. And I am making the argument that everybody does this, including me, including you, including the founding fathers. You know, I mean, it, I just I just sort of felt like we're going to take this term and just embrace it and revel in it and at no, and never let people forget that I am not using it to set apart some group of other people. But I'm describing something that pervades um, politics and political thinking. I'm including at least some of the time my own um, and it's uh, and, and just sort of roll with it from there. I mean, I mean, that that's one of the uh, I mean, I'm not I'm obviously not the person who coined the phrase United States of paranoia. Um, but I mean, that's kind of um, part of what's implicit in, in the uh, 
uh, title, you know, or should be implicit. It's a, this is a, we are united by our states of paranoia. Um, so I, I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a fair criticism to raise. Um, and I try to anticipate it and just sort of move forward is I, cause you got to pick a word. I'm writing an article right now, um, about the return of the cult scare, um, and people's fears of cults. And I go back and forth on, um, the word cult. You know, it's one of those things that I, in one sense, use all the time um, when I'm making jokes and so on. Like, hey, it sounds like you joined a cult, you know. And at the same time, I'm I'm aware of how it's used to sort of stigmatize any sort of new, small, weird group. Um, and in my um, sort of formal writing, I will I generally don't call things cults. I, I I will use like I will use sort of these kind of phrases that sort of like yeah, I mean, I've written like a historical thing and said once that said uh, like um, groups whose critics called them cults. You know, I'm trying to not sound awkward and so on when I when I use this, but it's and in in the end though, I have to just sort of like say this is a phrase that people use in different ways, and let's just sort of look at that that word itself. What does it create? And you know um, that we're um, that we're then sort of playing in and fearing in and so forth. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not a great word, paranoia, but in, in a way, I'm, I'm thinking one of the subjects of the book is how we think about paranoia. Um, what conspiracy theories do people have about conspiracy theorists? Uh, what's going on, um, not just in the minds of those militiamen, but in the minds of the people you're talking about who were afraid of the militiamen? Um, and I don't know, I think the, work, the word worked okay as a springboard. Um, Hopefully yeah, people no. <laughs> took my hopefully people took my disclaimer seriously and kept it in mind. Yeah, no, I, I would say your book is one of the only ones that that succeeds in kind of um in using it in a way that that avoids the pitfalls of the the sort of pathologizing style that comes out of Hofstadter. I'd say many of the other ones that do are are novels, right? Are sort of Delillo and Pynchon and people like that. Um yeah, for a- whom it is this kind of, you know, it becomes this this thing to embrace and turn into the basis of a kind of literary experimentation and playfulness. But well, one thing I write about in the book, um, in chapter nine, I talk about the ironic style um, of, of paranoia. And the sort of the key idea there is that these are people who are seeing conspiracy theories, at least most of the time, <laughs> seeing conspiracy theories not as something to be debunked or embraced, but to be played with. And see what um how you can mine uh mine this for some it turn it into sort of this vast mutant mythos that you can find you know jokes and metaphors and so on in um yeah and it in a lot of ways i was sort of seeing this book as um as in that um tradition not in the sense of the hoaxes they did i tried very hard to get all my facts straight um but in the sense that you know i'm not setting out to debunk conspiracy theories although i in some cases, tell people what the evidence is, especially if it's like a really old one that they won't have any familiarity with. I'm not setting out to espouse conspiracy theories, though I do talk about some real conspiracies that happened, like COINTELPRO. Um, but I really just want to say this is a history of what people believed and um, what can we learn from that. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, this does lead into something else I wanted to bring up, which which is exactly that um, that sort of ironic style. And there was an interesting article by this um, New York Times tech writer Amanda Hess about this proliferation of 
sort of YouTube channels and sort of vloggers and people like that, particularly young people. And I, I haven't looked into it that much, but I imagine there's a new wave of this with TikTok recently. Mm. Um, kind of taking all of these classic, you know, one example is the flat earth, um, you know, the, the whole ex explosion of sort of flat earth content. Yeah. And another is going back to the moon landing hoax stuff. And so she has an interesting piece that is just a, um, a, a reflection on some of these but she, her conclusion sort of raised some questions for me because in thinking about how these, these young, you know, let's say teenagers or 20 something kids who are making these videos about, you know, the moon landing and stuff, she says, um, whereas conspiracy theories used to be a, a serious business now in the context of these, you know, these sort of YouTubers and so on, she says it is less about having convictions than it is about having fun. And she says that the internet has made belief irrelevant. Conspiracy theorizing is no longer stigmatized. It's just for fun. So, you know, this seemed like, I, I feel like one of the main things that I come back to a lot with your book is the sort of nothing new under the sun is, um, is this, approach of it. But is this the article that came out in 2019? Yes. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, cause I remember um, jumping on that on Twitter when it came out okay. because, mm -hmm. and I just did a search is when I realized I thought, that I yeah. recognize what you were saying. Yeah. Um, she, she has this quote where she says, moon conspiracy theorizing used to be serious business. Right. right. And she mentions um, a book called We Never Went to the Moon. Yeah. And I, so I, you know, dug out, this is how uh, a newsletter called Conspiracy Digest reacted to that book in 1977. Direct quote. We don't take this one seriously, but collectors of conspiracy apocrypha may <laughs> want it anyway. Um, and this was not by an ironic style um, guy. This was Peter McAlpine. Um, so it's a, um, who was, uh, you know, wrote the occult technology of power. And uh, I talk about him in my book too. Um, so, but I mean, he had that flash of that, that sometimes you might do something like this just for fun, because it's, um, I don't, you know, I don't really get into the moon landing um, mm -hmm. uh, story in my, in my book. And in fact, um, one of my uh, little errors I kicked myself about was sort of related to that. I, um, I misdescribed the plot of Capricorn one because I hadn't seen it for like two decades when I wrote this. And I forgot that they are actually going to Mars and not the moon um, in there. So I think in the Kindle edition, they fixed that. Um, uh, but I, I, I used the uh, wrong word in my little one sentence summary of, uh, of what the, uh, the movie is about. But it's, uh, I was surprised then, since I hadn't really explored the moon landing stuff history, um, uh, I think it was Matt Novak did a, um, a historical piece on the moon landing stuff uh, when we went through the anniversary of the moon, probably came out around the uh, landing, it probably ran, came out around the same time as that Amanda Hess article. And uh, there was actually a pretty high, it pulled pretty high back right after the landing that it was a hoax. Um, uh, being, I think, driven more by just sort of people saying, like, ah, yeah, that's what they're they're doing. But I don't believe what they're saying. Uh, you know, the way people sort of react to, uh, we all know people who react like this to anything that, you know, the government says. Um, and, and and really, I think not so much coming out of these kind of um, later attempts to build a real theory around it um, in terms of, uh, well, look, that looks like that flag is flying, but there's no wind on the moon and all that. Um, nowadays, of course, that's long past. And it's like, I, it's been a while since I've seen the polling, but 
it's like five percent or whatever believe and like it's a i mean low enough that the margin of trolling is has got to be a, a a chunk of the response a big chunk of the responses um but yeah so i i i was frustrated by that amanda hess article actually because you know the ironic style is a lot older than the internet and some of the pe first people to colonize the internet you know from outside you know the whole arpanet world were people um deeply in debt to in their in their thinking to the ironic style i a lot of early usenet was discordians um and for that matter i mean like discordianism which is like one of these ironic style ideas we'll probably talk about it a bit more when we get to adam curtis's documentary a lot of those guys became computer programmers and they were in, on the ground floor um and helped establish um uh sort of like early uh digital culture so it's uh i i don't know i i was um i don't right there might have been i don't remember if i liked the rest of that article or not because it's been two years since it came out or one and a half years or whatever but i have um i remember being frustrated by that particular comment yeah no the i mean the phenomenon it was describing is is quite interesting but um it definitely lacked a an adequate historical depth. And yeah, I, you know, perhaps getting into Discordianism, Operation Mindfuck, uh, Carrie Thornley, um, Robert Anson Wilson, and so on is, um, is the way we should go from here. But, you know, it's, I, I, I think what, what you see there is this, um, this constant theme, which is that there is a, a kind of constant slippage between the serious and the unserious or the ironic and the the literal or, and, and how it, it always seems difficult to, um, keep those separated and that, 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 that at least, um, seems like the, the consistent, um, quality of this, of this entire sort of set of cultural phenomena. Um, so, you know, perhaps for the benefit of my listeners who may not, not have this historical background, um, how would you, you know, briefly summarize the, um, that that set of tendencies and their place in this kind of you know late twentieth century conspiracy culture. So I'll just sort of start with discordianism, although a lot of um, although that doesn't exhaust the subject. It's kind of like the most um, potent example. Um, this was uh, originated at the end of the nineteen fifties in its first form by a couple of high school buddies in California, Carrie Thornley and Greg Hill. Um, and the idea was um, the worship of Eris, Greek goddess of chaos. Um, they weren't literally worshiping her. It was a joke religion. Um, and in the, uh, it just originally became this kind of gag between a couple of high school students. Um, but in the 1960s, as they continued to correspond with one another, and as um, uh, Carrie Thornley's life intersected with the um, the investigation of the Kennedy assassination for various reasons, um, including the fact that he had been in the Marines with Lee Harvey Oswald um, and uh, had uh, been friends with Oswald. Um, Thornley at the time was kind of an Ayn Randian objectivist. Oswald was a Marxist. They had these kinds of you know friendly debates. I I can easily imagine the sort of i you may have been in these situations in your life as well where there's someone that you fundamentally disagree with but he's the other person who's interested in these issues and so you have fun you know talking together and so on and then when after oswald um defected to the soviet union um thornley decided to write a novel i mean it's sort of like a hijinks um 
uh, comic novel, um, but it was partly inspired by um, this guy he knew, Oswald. Um, and the novel wasn't published until much, much later because it had become kind of a, uh, uh, a curiosity that this guy had written a novel about Oswald before November 22nd, 1963. Um, so, I mean, it, and because of the interest in discordianism and the interest in that and, and so on, it was eventually published. But um, so Thornley, uh, but at, at any rate, I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, uh, I was supposed to describe this style. Thornley initially is someone who wrote a, a book called Oswald that was published right after the assassination that sort of took it for granted that, you know, the conspiracy theories were untrue. Um, he was uh, interested in the idea of conspiracy theories as people imposing, trying to impose order on the disorderly universe. That in fact, you know, heiress rules, discord rules, um, and conspiracy theories are just kind of this extreme idea of, um, uh, of, the, of what we do all the time in terms of like sort of creating narratives to, that impose order on things and, and try to make sense of things. And he was also, they were also prone to doing um, sort of things mocking Christianity, mocking evangelical pamphlets, um, like uh, doing like, uh, how would you convert someone to worship heiress? You know, hey, who put all this chaos here and so on. So th this is a sort of thing that's going back and forth in this correspondence between Thorry, Thornley and, and Hill and some other people they drew into, uh, into all this. At the end of the 60s, someone got the idea for what they called Operation Mindfuck. Um, and a number of people were involved with this, but I, I think the two most important were Thornley and Robert Anton Wilson, um, who um, was uh, later became a, a, a sort of a cult writer, but at that time was you know an editor at Playboy, who also wrote for various underground newspapers and 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 so on. And they were going to um, insert stories about the Bavarian Illuminati um, into publications around the country. Send letters to folks like, you know, Robert Welch, the head of the John Birch Society, um, you know, saying, hey, we're the Illuminati, you're on the right track, but here's the stuff you don't know. Um, plant stories, and, I mean, they got one in Teen Set magazine, which is sort of a teeny bopper thing, which claimed, among other things, that Bob Hope was an agent of the Illuminati. They uh, put stuff in underground newspapers, as I said. Um, Thornley and, and Wilson, Wilson was at the time editing the um, the little Playboy forum section of Playboy where people would write in with like sort of political questions and give like civil liberties advice and things like that. So they had, um, they cooked up like a fake uh, letter asking about the Bavarian Illuminati and spreading a lot of these ideas and then having a response that was sort of more like the sort of institutional secular, this isn't true, but also dropping in a couple of um, goofy ideas in that as well. Um, and at this time, it's important to understand, although, the Illuminati conspiracy theories had been around since the end of the 18th century, um, and they had um, been revived and sort of um, on the far right um, going back to the 1920s. Um, like Nesta Webster wrote stuff in Britain, and then a lot, which and then a lot of that came over um, to the United States and were picked up by Birchers and other folks like that. It was still um, it was mostly confined to those kind of far right. Um, circles and also in a sort of a different way, um, some mystics. And there was, um, I've seen things written in the post war era where people invoke the Illuminati and they have no idea that they're actually people who believe they still exist. They, they're just sort of like they're comparing red hunters to 
uh, the people who are part of the Illuminati scare at the end of the 1790s, beginning of the 1800s as a historical episode. So a lot of the um, sort of current penetration of the Illuminati throughout pop culture um, can be traced back to these um, efforts to sort of drop um, the Illuminati into all these um, countercultural and new left and, and sort of edge of the pop culture um, press at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. And then ultimately, um, uh, two Discordians, Wilson and Robert Shea, wrote um, a trilogy called Illuminatus, which um, became a cult book. Um, it's very much in that kind of pension um, uh, um, uh, lineage that you were discussing earlier, but in a much more sort of fun and pulpy way. I like, I mean, I like pension, but, you know, uh, Illuminatus is, is, you know, postmodernism you can give to your 15-year-old uh, buddy and say, hey, read this, um, and, and not expect them to come back saying, what the hell? <laughs> um, so it was, um, so they play this role, but again, the idea was sort of to have fun, and they, they, there was this initial idea that um, you could break people out of their paranoia by doing this. Of course, the ulti- what ultimately happened is it got kind of, they sucked into the maw of, you know, the 60s and 70s general paranoia, when some of these people who are active in left-wing and or libertarian politics were, you know, getting spied on and things like that, because they're going to anti-war rallies, meeting with Black Panthers and so on. Um, and there was a, um, and Kerry Thornley um, basically went mad. Um, he became convinced that, I mean, he had been, Jim Garrison had investigated him in the, um, uh, because he thought that he might, Thornley might have been involved in the Kennedy conspiracy. And then um, Thornley became convinced that he was, that without knowing it. Um, and one of my frustrations with the Adam Curtis documentary is that he brings this up, but does not talk about just how deep into this Thornley went. I mean, I have, manuscripts that the guy right in a box a few feet away from here i've, I've got um a, like a typed manuscript he wrote i don't think it was published anywhere um that was just um i, I mean like kind of brain I, I should i should dig it out and read you a passage i, I don't think i could do it justice uh, actually give me a second i i might um freeze the um well this seems like a scoop yeah take a moment to um if i can find yeah tribulations of the contemporary communist anarchist movement by Carrie Wendell Thornley, 1983, a spare change monograph. So I think that means that he was um, handing these out on the street in Atlanta. Um, I don't recall whether he was actually living on the streets at that point or if that came later. Um, and let me see if I can find a, um, oh, beyond below that much though are deeper factions that reach far up into the ruling class involving neo-Nazis, fascist West German cartels and an anti-Bolshevik secret society called the National Alliance of Russian Solidarists. Um, actually, some of this, oh, here we go, a Satanist movement that began working with ex-Nazis and the Soviets against the church, um, the silicon chip inside her head. Uh, I mean, Thornley became um, convinced that some people were being controlled remote controlled through their pacemakers I, which i don't know if that's in here but it, um family members and friends of the designated victim including infants become hostages and victims of electrochemical mental manipulation as well consequently whenever any such radical succeeds in organizing an action against the establishment that activity is bound to strike against, if anyone, a ruling class interest that is in conflict with the policies of the Hoover institution and no other. 
Um, I could go on. You kind of get the, the sense here. Yeah. Well, this and I I did this, an episode. This, I was going to uh, say this probably makes you think yeah. of the um, targeted individuals. Yeah, stuff, exactly. Which I know you've and, written about. And and also I did an episode already a few weeks ago on Francis E. Deck. Yeah, I, I, and, I haven't. I have not yeah, listened to it yet. But yeah, I you but, did one. yeah. But I mean that you know he he really kind of converged based on <laughs> what you just read with Deck in some respects, and especially the handing out you know, the pamphlets on the street. I mean, that was, that was what Deck was doing as well. So. And, and, but the thing is, if I, um, I mean, looking at this now, it's sort of coming back to me. Some of this is just kind of his, a metaphoric way for getting across political points that um, he could have made in a non-conspiracy, would have made in a non-conspiracist way 15 years earlier. I mean, looking at it, I can feel sympathetic to it. He's talking about the ways that, um, you know, different, um, uh, groups of people who dissent in one way or another find themselves at odds with one another rather than against what, what you know, would be a common enemy. And so I, that's a very um, banal way to put it. I mean, there's some more sophistication to it, except then he goes beyond sophistication and imagines actual, you know, the manipulators who are, you know, I mean, look, I've worked right down here. I see the phrase intelligence bureaus and Jesuitical secret societies. So the Jesuits are, you know, um, it's uh, so. I mean, that's Carrie Thornley. Um, I, I I think we've gotten a bit far further away from the ironic style. I I will say though that the ironic style would be to write something like this to make that point about um, the way that um, organizations are turned against each other, and to do this kind of jokey um, conspiracy framework that's over the top absurd, so that nobody could believe it. Um, and that's what the Discordians did. That's what the Church of the Subgenius did, you know, other groups like that. But, but Thornley, by the time he's writing this, is, um, is really believing it um, and suffering in his own life as a result of it. Um, so it's a case of, you know, the ironic style can turn sincere. And for that matter, sincerity can become irony. I mean, I've seen um, there are people I know who took ideas more seriously than they really did. Um, who can now sort of write it off as irony. Um, and uh, I've certainly, I've certainly seen, actually, I know one case of um, the Washington Post, I think it was, ran a piece on, you know, what do these wacky conspiracy theorists believe um, in the wake of Oklahoma City that was written by um, a fellow from, uh, I think it was Steam Shovel Press, you know, one of those um, zines devoted to conspiracy thinking. And the person, um, uh, you know, wrote it in this manner that was all very, that went in through all these things in this kind of mocking tone, or, or at least a kind of detached, ironic Washington Post style section um, tone. And I am curious um, whether, to what extent this was a guy selling out and to what extent he was figuring this was his way to get these ideas into the post and then someone might look into them further um, and maybe a bit of column one and a bit of column of uh, column two. But um, one thing I knew was that whatever story he might give me 20 years later was not necessarily what was going through his mind at the time that he wrote it. <coughs> so, yeah, that's the ironic style. Um, I, I think yeah. I, and, yeah, go on. Yeah, no, and, and I think the, you know, again, that Hess piece, but also, you know, we can get into Curtis now. You know, he has a, um, he had an interview that I listened to the other day about the documentary where he discussed um, he, he was actually talking about these Illuminati video, you know, where these sort of celebrity Illuminati videos, which, which might be 
sort of um, categorized by some as similar to these sort of, um, you know, YouTubers talking about the moon landing hoax, but, um, you know, where he was kind of talking about how they, they always seem ambiguous in terms of how, how much of it is serious and how much of it is fun. But I think what, what a lot of people miss and and what we've just um, covered is the, the way that this kind of slippage has been occurring for a long time. And this, this ambiguity has been, has been a feature of this culture for, for a very long time. I mean, really since, you know, ever since it first existed in some recognizable form almost. Um, I mean, I, I trace a history of the ironic style yeah. as someone who mm-hmm. sort of says that, um, that a lot of this stuff has been around for, you know, ages. I, I should say, I, I do think that the, at least if not, I mean, I'm sure there are people who process this stuff iron- ironically going back through the, you know, through the eons. Um, but you can actually look at a sort of an origin point, um, uh, for this particular, um, strain of activity. Um, with some precursors, I mean, and also something which I linked to that, which is the fusion style. I mean, there's always been, um, you know, intersection of these different sorts of conspiracy folklore. Um, the left picks up something from the right, the right picks up something from the left and so on. But in terms of people who think of themselves as a self-conscious um, conspiracy theory chasing subculture, um, that to me really begins in the 60s and 70s. You, you can make a case that the Charles Fort type people were doing something similar before that. Um, but even then it wasn't specifically, I mean, these guys were interested in all kinds of, traditionally, I should back up. Traditionally, you have people on the left have the conspiracy theories of the left. People on the right have the conspiracy theories of the right. Catholics have conspiracy theories about Masons. Masons have conspiracy theories about Catholics. This is this is separate from someone being just kind of like, I am interested in conspiracy theories. I think there are some folks out there and I want that who are up to something and I'm going to draw these um, different um, sources together. Even when you had folks who were you know, on the left and willing to read a right wing source to try to just draw that out. They weren't doing it in the sense of I am a conspiracy theorist. That is my identity. Um, the Fortians <coughs> did sort of do something like that, but even then it was more of like sort of a broader anything outside of consensus reality. So it would all, it would be a conspiracy theory, but also CMOS. Um And uh, so it's uh, something that's specifically about conspiracy theorists of a conspiracy subculture is to my mind, in, in some ways, Hofstetter helps create it. I mean, he doesn't use the phrase conspiracy theory a lot. He's saying paranoid style. But generally, once you had this idea that this was a style, um, and then that people started attaching the phrase conspiracy theory to, to describe not just, and people have been using that to both neutrally and to stigmatize people for a while before that, but to, um, to um, talk about a particular kind of person, I think that helps create the identity. I mean, this is kind of like a bit of you know labeling theory or something. Um, but even to the extent that it's not created by it, its critics, even to the extent that it arose organically, um, it's really kind of it's not till you know the 1970s that you start seeing play- publications with names like Conspiracy Digest and Conspiracies Unlimited and The Grassy Knoll and, and so on. Um, and of course, the internet, you know amplified the ability to do this, but it, it precedes the mass internet. So the ironic style in part, I mean, although the ironic style rises independently, um, in part, it's what happens when the 
this conspiracy subculture looks at itself. It's possible to flip, flip back and forth between being an ironist who's just sort of playing with these ideas without necessarily believing them and being a fusionist. I'm saying fusionist because Michael Kelly wrote a famous piece in the 90s um, using the phrase fusion paranoia to describe the way that sort of like militia people were intersecting with like leftist critics and so but I'm anachronistically extending it backwards to describe this general um, subculture you know you could flick back and forth back and forth between um, being sincerely interested in as a fusionist and being um, uh, an ironist and in addition to the fact that you had Discordians and, and the Church of the Subgenius and so on doing this stuff in a sort of intellectually turned on this is our project way this is operation mindfuck um some degree of an ironic style was inevitable once you had the fusionist style because that was going to start looking at itself and um you know subcultures in general there there comes a point when there's a degree of self-awareness and self-aware humor um and uh well what do you know robert anton wilson and terry thornley mostly wilson i should say i mean he picked up the ball from Thornley and, and really um, ran with it, and in a way that you know kept his head. Um, that you know gave them a, you know a toolkit um, uh, for understanding it. But there were other people sort of independent. I mean, William Burroughs, in his way, was sort of independently doing this. He's moved, and he does the same thing of moving back and forth between the jokes and the um, and the sincerity. You know, because he sincerely believed a lot of fringe ideas, but. Um, he was also very capable of being tongue in cheek and and um, playing with. And he was and Burroughs was friends with Wilson. I don't know if he ever met Thornley, um, but you know, I mean, there was a lot of um, back and forth there as well. So there's a real meeting of the minds about of a lot of these people. And and Pynchon is also part of this. Um, I don't know if um, to what extent Pynchon was plugged in to this happening, at least as it started. Um, but I mean, Wilson and Shay were certainly reading Pynchon. They they gave Tristero from the Crying of Lot Forty Nine a little cameo in Illuminatus, um, and they uh, they saw what um, uh, and uh, of course, oh, um, both uh, Gravity's Rainbow and Illuminatus make reference to Mumbo Jumbo uh, or uh, to Ishmael Reed, um, who had his um, um his sort of famous conspiracy novel from this time mumbo jumbo came out in 1972 and uh wilson sent him uh, an official membership in the bavarian illuminati and i read it and i don't know if reed um knew exactly what what this what this was uh, in terms of like you know what project he was being um roped into without his knowledge um but i did read an interview with him once where um he said uh Someone asked him about awards he'd gotten from his work. And he said, well, someone did send me a certificate saying I was now a member of the Bavarian Illuminati. So I got that one. Um, anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, Reed is uh, another, I mean, really wonderful um, novelist who uh, just sees the potent, the sort of narrative potential of these kinds of experiments yeah. early on. And, um, you know, this would probably be a whole other conversation about just the, um you know, the way that it becomes really central to the evolution of American fiction in this mm -hmm. period. And, and there is this, this interaction and this kind of parallel, which, you know, really has to do with the rise of the, of the postmodern novel and yeah. its, its sort of self-consciousness about narrative play and so on. But I did I, want I to get into say, the, yeah. Operation, Mind, mm -hmm. Operation Mindfuck was, in a lot of ways, a, um, a participatory postmodern project. The idea Absolutely. was to call into question mm -hmm 
these master narratives in a way by, by colliding all these master narratives together. Um, I don't think any of the people involved with creating it were at that moment familiar with. Actually, I don't know when did the phrase when did the word postmodern um, start to be used in like not like architecture but like a sort of literary context, like as a way to describe. Because I know these novels were coming out. Uh, you had like Barth and Pynchon and so on writing in the '60s. But when did people start calling them postmodern? Do you know? I'm not really sure. I mean, it doesn't in terms of literary criticism, it doesn't really become a big thing until the '80s. Yeah. with basically Leotard and then Jameson. So I, yeah. I'm not sure in terms of how those novels were being described in the 70s, sort of prior to this, you know, because the term sort of postmodern metafiction starts being used, but but that's, I think, really post-Jameson's um, essay, postmodernism essay. So. Yeah, and that's like, what, 82 or so? When did that come out? Is yeah, something like post- that, yeah. I remember actually... Um, I, I was in high school in the 80s and um, uh, someone came to speak to um, my uh, English class about um, uh, 11th or 12th graders. I guess it must have been 12th. It was like AP English. And this person comes. So if it was AP, it must have been 12. This person came in to give like a little lecture about postmodern fiction. Um, and I at the time was um, just really into Philip K. Dick, who I had discovered um, in um he had not had his revival yet. This was like a couple of years before his revival. I just sort of stumbled on him in the library and was reading all I could because, you know, I, I, I had actually, I, I had started reading like Pynchon and Burroughs too, but I was a teenager, mostly reading genre novels. And it seemed, so this guy gave this, um, this talk and I came after him and say, you know, there's a lot of stuff in science fiction that is exactly like what you're describing here. And he says, oh, science. So he used the word bureaucratic. I think he might have read some Asimov novel or something. And, it, and I and I told, I remember like getting a list like a, a Ubik. I might have told him to read Barry Malsberg, Beyond Apollo. I don't know if he did, but I remember I, I have this feeling I was in on the ground floor of like claiming Philip K. Dick for the postmodernists before the academics, because um, th- this this fellow was like looking at me like I was um, suggesting that he, you know, eat the uh, cow manure or something. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, no, I, no, no, I'm, no. I'm, I'm detouring no, things with my stupid no, memories. No, absolutely. No, I mean, the, well, you know, it's uh, it's. It's all part of the style, right? It's, yeah, uh, right. Yeah. But um, but as far as the uh, Adam Curtis, which we've sort of been, in a way, rehearsing a number of the themes that have been brought back into my mind by watching the Adam Curtis documentary in the past mm-hmm. week, where he obviously, um, Carrie Thornley plays something of a role in it. Um, he also brings in the Hofstadter thesis. And he, you know, the the sort of rise of conspiracy culture and sort of various phenomena that are put under the paranoia heading, you know, is, is one of the main sort of threads and through lines of this, um, you know, quite. And he gets a lot wrong. Right? Narrative. And, and I, yeah, I was just basically curious to get your sense of, of what he gets right and what he gets wrong. And I mean, um, that's such a big topic. And especially, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, the fact that I'm able to see him getting things wrong when it's about discordianism or something else that I have an interest in and like, you know, the cultural revolution or that I lived through like, um, you know, the, the, the 1990s, I, it makes me wonder what he's getting wrong in other areas that I don't know as well. Um, yeah, I, he, um, it's, uh, 
But I, I was just sort of, on the one hand, picking out little factual errors, like saying that Kerry Thornley had published his Oswald novel in the late 60s, which, as I said, he hadn't. Or um, at one point, he had Ford as president in 1978. I noticed that. <laughs> which was, I mean... With, I, with I, the I, Betty Ford Valium exactly. moment. And I, yeah. like, I am... Um, I know that if I were doing something about Britain, I might get a prime minister. Uh, I may, I, uh, I don't know necessarily when so-and-so became prime minister, but I would try to get that right before I, I mean, we all make errors and I don't want to, oh, I, 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 it's more the big picture stuff that bothers me than the little picture stuff. Um, but it was uh, nonetheless, that kind of, a couple of those just kind of gnawed at me. Um, and then when he got to, um, one thing I got aggravated and was um, tweeting about was, um, and this is a bit more substantial, was the, uh, I keep, and he's talking about Deng Xiaoping's plot against the West. Um, I mean, to begin with, there's this tendency, and this is like the way in which Adam Curtis has his own paranoid style, you know, um, he's making things seem much more pre-planned than they were. I mean, Deng Xiaoping was improvising in response to a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of market reforms were driven by just sort of legalizing what peasants were already doing in the countryside because they were tending to their own plots and, 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 and so on. And, um, and there's actually an interesting story to be told about the ways that the, um, the chaos of the Cultural Revolution and the ways that it made um, China less governable um, opened the door for a lot of um, this, uh, uh, what became, you know, market reform and so on, which is um, something that is ideologically uncomfortable for a lot of both Marxists and free market people, I think. Um, but setting that aside, um, but even, even beyond that, like, fine, you understand that a personality-centered documentary, and this, this really is, documentary is a lot of mini bios of fascinating people, right? is going to maybe put too much stock in the importance of what that person did. I think he does that with Thornley too. Um, is that what he describes Deng Xiaoping's plot, I mean, I think his analysis is wrong, but it also just completely mirrors the yellow peril stuff he talks about one or two episodes later. And he's got to be self-aware enough to know he's doing this. And maybe he's trying to make a larger point that we're trying to, that we are supposed to figure out for ourselves. I'm trying to be like, give a charitable reading, reading of this. But I mean, he's really, I mean, at times in that he's setting up, um, I mean, he's talking about, not just that, when he's talking about Deng Xiaoping working hand in hand with the bankers, which in a sense is true, you know, but it's also, he sort of presents in this conspiratorial way that obviously mirrors the stuff he has, these folks from, oh God, what was it called? The League of the Defense, you know, A.K. Chesterton's group that he had the quotes from I'm blanking on, but it's like the League of the Defense of the Empire or something like that. Um, when they're talking about, you know, a Jewish plot, you know, bringing together subversives and um, and bankers. And it's it's very um, he kind of plays footsie with this stuff. And I, I again, to some extent, there's could be his own ironic style. You had, I think, a very perceptive um, Twitter thread sort of comparing this to a pension novel himself and his style and all. But it's um, I don't know. I, I think as a storyline, and I got much more frustrated with it in the last three episodes than in the first. Three. Although I should say the last half hour was the best. I thought what he had to say about Russiagate and the replicability crisis in psychology and people's fears of, uh, I mean, o overrating the power of these technologies and so on. Um, I was nodding my head. I was agreeing with Curtis there. But I mean, there's just so many places where um, nuances were missing. Um, like he talks in the 1990s, and this is far away from any of the 
conspiracy stuff, but I, I, I think it, it illustrates something um, about moving away from mass democracy. Um, and he's kind of getting to, and he meant, a lot of this is about the rise of these supranational um, institutions like the European Union, you know, which, which, fine, there's like a, a definite attempt to sort of shield um, decision-making from um, popular input there. But he also talks about, you know, support for this uh, coup in Algeria, which of course is not new at all. I mean, and he mentions at other times, you know, Western support for coups. And then I think, well, you know what? In terms of actual number of nations that are in some sense democratic, um, some meaningful sense, democratic or semi-democratic, there's an explosion in them of, of, in the 90s because the Cold War ends. Um, and that means, first of all, you've got all these communist bloc countries becoming more democratic. Not all of them, you know, obviously there's some Central Asian despotisms, but most of them becoming at least some steps in that direction. But also in, in the West, like um, these, you know, dictatorships in Africa and, and Latin America that were um, able to get away with a lot because they said they were fighting communists, uh, communists didn't have that excuse anymore and, and didn't have the, the aid gravy train coming. And that's a big reason for democratization in a lot of the third world. And there's this a real um, leap in it um, in this period that he's seeing. It's like the end of democracy, and it because it fits his sort of argument about individualism, which I don't buy. Um, like it's a, it's very. I, I mean, he he kind of um, goes with what fits that and what doesn't, I guess. But I mean, he's trying to make this case of you know, um, uh, and he keeps saying, um, yeah, he keeps having this. Uh, um, narrative tick of saying now or suddenly, you know, and to describe something where in some cases he's described it happening in the past, but other times we know of it. So I just got really frustrated. And I, and I, I do enjoy his style, you know, the way he just sort of has this sort of free associative um, and, and he's fascinated by so many of the same thing, uh, topics and personalities and events like, you know, is anything more interesting than Chinese, than the Chinese cultural revolution in the last 60 years? I mean, it's um I uh, and I and the whole sort of asynchronous. I mean, you you could speak to this better than I did because you already have and you did a good job. So and I, I watched the whole thing. You know, I probably watched it a little faster than I ordinarily would have because I knew you wanted to talk about it today. But it was um it was just kind of being frustrated. And I know that's been a problem with past documentaries too. Uh, I mean, after um was hypernormalization was that the one with like Ayn Rand was a big uh, part of that am I getting my titles mixed up I just remember there was like one like Rand fan who like put like a list of all the factual errors about about her life you know on like on this one website and I when you see them all in, in a list like that and this is because this was written by one of those devotees that would know in and out every single <laughs> a part of her life um it was just like you know wow you can't really um Whatever he's doing here, I mean, it's not um, not really history. Um, and I can enjoy it in that kind of ironic style way, the same way I can enjoy, you know, Carrie Thornley's, uh, you know, pamphlet or that he's handing out on the street. Pamphlet isn't even the right word for it, just sheaf of papers. Um, but it's, um, but I think a lot of people take it um, more literally than it does, take his stuff more literally than it deserves. Um, and especially when he has sort of, um, you know, discordianism as one of his topics there, it would have been more interesting. Again, he gets to it in the last half hour, but it would have been more interesting to um, um, to see him sort of be more, um, I don't know, I don't want to say explicit because I hate handholding, but more self-aware, I guess, about the ways he, 
he was falling into these traps. Um, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, like, I know that you find the knots bowls fascinating. You probably found the whole, and, and did you notice a lot of errors or not with when he was talking about the national Bolsheviks and um, other than I think I, again, overrating their importance. Yeah. I mean, like he got this one yeah. point where he says like, but there was one person who disagrees. Like, no, yeah. it's not the one person who disagreed. Well, um, I think, yeah, it's odd. So on one hand, he, um, right. I mean, they, they were incredibly minor formation in the scheme of things, but obviously in his narrative, they're sort of magnified into this central and representative force in that period. So that's probably somewhat um, misleading to those uninformed about the background, but I mean, you know, it's, I think they are interesting as a, you know, a kind of, um, you know, we could compare them to the Discordians or, or someone, someone like that. And that, you know, Limonov was this, you know, almost kind of situationist sort of post-punk figure who, mm-hmm. right um, situationist, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but who was really engaged in this weird, um, you know, highly self-conscious project of, of sort of narrative building. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I you know, there, there's, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think he, um, it, there, it would be interesting for him to go also into the way that, and, and this does obviously um, come up somewhat in, in some of his other work in hypernormalization and elsewhere, but um, the, the way that, um, that, you know, he presents them as this kind of oppositional project to the emergent um, Putin regime. But, you know, what's, what's actually interesting is the way that, um, that Putin was, and he, you know, he doesn't talk about Surkov in, in, uh, in this documentary, but Surkov is an interesting figure as somebody who, was himself a kind of, um, you know, practitioner of the ironic style who, who in a sense made it into a, a sort of strategy, a, a sort of propaganda strategy. Mm-hmm. So, so there's more that, you know, there's more that could be teased out of that, but, but he, um, I don't know. So I think just as an overall thing, there was one point he makes in the last episode that, that might be worth us um, talking about, which is, that he compares uh, machine, so he compares the functioning of machine learning mm-hmm. to the proliferation of sort of internet-driven conspiracy culture, and he argues that you know basically machine learning functions in such a way that the the algorithm is fed an immense trove of data and then is kind of left to seek out patterns in it, um, and that the sort of um, you know, the, the, the average user of the internet who is submerged in ever-growing quantities of, d- of data, often contradictory and seemingly nonsensical, is, is put in the same position as the machine learning algorithm, mm-hmm. right? And so his claim is that the way that, um, and, you know, it really goes back to the, the, the basic theme of discordianism, right? <laughs> the mm-hmm. sort of idea that there's a, um, you know, that, that the, you know, in this case, the, the chaos of the universe is embodied in the chaos of the, the proliferation of, of data and the sort of collapse of narratives amidst that. And so then the user is put in the position of trying to, um, trying to create some kind of improvised order out of that. So I was curious what you thought of that. Um, yeah, so I kind of like, I kind of like that um, comparison to the, um, to the machine learning. I, th- I think there's a sense in which it's kind of auto- the automated order finding is, is interesting. But of course, the average user has, you know, a degree of 
will and knowledge and um, contextual awareness that does not leave them utterly helpless in the sense of a, of a machine learning uh, program. I, I, um, and we all know people who've kind of taken sources seriously that they shouldn't or who don't know how to um, distinguish them. And I think that that's a kind of important sort of educational pro uh, uh, project to you know, help people understand how to sift claims and figure out how to, seriously to take people. But the very fact that we're capable of doing that um, <coughs> means we're in a different situation than that, you know, the thing of the finding dog faces that he does in the, in the movie, which was very visually creepy and cool. You know, like that was a good part of, of the film. So, um, so that's it. And there has just been this tendency to, um, to sort of blame algorithms for everything these days, especially YouTube algorithms. Um, one of the I've never been like the subject of like a or the target of like a huge um, internet like Twitter pylon. Um, I shouldn't say internet pylon. I've had people mad at me and comment threats, but I mean I think probably the the, the biggest Twitter pylon I was ever kind of um, one of the only like maybe two times that something like that has happened was when I compared um, um, the YouTube rabbit hole. I mean, you know, the, there's the algorithmic story that people they go on YouTube and then they see something, and YouTube keeps feeding them more and more of the same thing, and it's right there. And and I, um, to me, this is just sort of a more um, interactive um, and extensive version of going to the library and something being next to it on the shelf that um, isn't as reliable, but it still follows the Dewey Decimal. Um, and I said this. You know, and some responses were people who are just being, you know, playing dumb and not getting that. Obviously, I realize there's much more on YouTube and obviously it's interactive, you know, in ways. And on some of it was from people who just did not understand how much crank literature ends up in public libraries. Um, this is how I discovered conspiracy theories, people. <laughs> I was, you know, a teenager in the 1980s, interested in reading about this, you know, the CIA and FBI scandals. And what do you know? El Fratra Proudy is on there on the same shelf as, you know, the more um, reliable, you know, sources, you know. But in general, like this kind of um, people, uh, people were really attached to the idea that there was something more insidious going on because of this technology, that it wasn't simply um, a larger, more automated, possibly faster um, uh, version of, of something that's been going on for a long time. Um, and where all those things that I just said, you also have much more easy access to debunkings. I mean, I know there are certain there are things I believed for years um, just because um, I didn't come across the debunking. I'm not talking even about conspiracy things here. I'm just my anecdotes about politicians that you read in a left-wing or right-wing magazine and you know the other side doesn't know it's there to debunk. And years later you find out about it. Um, so and and also I have much less faith in the ability of these algorithms to work um, the way they're supposed to. I think that um, and Curtis kind of gets towards this, like you know, the ways these things don't function as well. But I know there was like one evening. Um, I was just in like whatever mood I was in. I decided I watched like some old interview with Norm MacDonald. And because I found it funny, I just looked for a bunch of other old 
Conan O'Brien and David Letterman. This is how I wasted time for, you know, two hours one evening while my family was out of town, you know. And as a result, like for six months or longer afterwards, I was constantly being shown as like, what else you might like, Norm MacDonald this, Norm MacDonald that. And I look at conspiracy shit for a living, okay? I am, and yet nonetheless, you know, YouTube is like feeding up to me, you know, some podcast with Norm MacDonald on it um, because of what I watched uh, X months earlier. You know, these things are, you know, Facebook's newsfeed. Facebook thinks I want to read whatever flame war was going on four days ago on someone else's page um, because there's a lot of responses. And God forbid I step in and say, hey, this link is interesting. It might help resolve this because then it's going to keep putting it up at the top, even though I'm not interested in that. Maybe that's supposed to boost engagement, but they're not always good at boosting engagement. Um, Amazon just tried to sell me some Ohio State branded stuff because my wife bought some Michigan branded stuff. <laughs> that makes no fucking sense at all. I can see how an algorithm did this because I figured out that's why we got it. It's because she got this, this other thing. Um, but I mean, these are the kinds of mistakes that, you know, people don't make, but algorithms do. Um, but there people, there's this techno paranoia. There's this sort of tendency to whatever the most recent machine is to give it like more powers than it really has. Um, and in the case of like the um, the internet stuff, so much of it is old. I mean, this this is a pattern that happens all the time. The older medium is goes after the newer medium. You know, um, you know, newspapers went after radio. They I talk about in the book about uh, in the United States of Paranoia about the ways that the um, public response to the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast was overrated. I, I, it was um, exaggerated. And part of the reason why it was exaggerated was because um, radio was a new medium and newspapers and magazines could go after it. Well, it's not to me all that surprising that the New York Times, um, you know, that 90% of their tech writers um, are obsessed with, you know, the evils of, the, of YouTube. Um, and as someone who like, I have a lot of um, critiques of these platforms, especially of Facebook, um, but I think that they, a lot of nonsense gets mixed in um, by these. Uh, I mean, a lot of my critiques are almost the exact opposite of these. Like, I, I think they're, you know, they, I don't like the way that algorithms are used to try to, um, I want to be able to go on Facebook and just see what the most recent posts are and then adjust that, make lists, you know, have be completely in the driver's seat. Um, I know what engages me and what doesn't. And I have to get extensions to automatically turn off the uh, automated newsfeed because even if you tell it to, 24 hours later, it will revert you, you know? So I don't like um, the sort of manipulative um, elements of these platforms as a consumer, not because I feel like I'm being um, like mind controlled, but because they don't know what I want and they're standing in, in the way of me getting what I want. Um, it's a much more sort of a, autonomous and uh, probably Curtis would think, you know, hyper-individualist uh, way of wanting to. And of course, what, um, what you know, you know these, the average Kevin Roos column in the New York Times, you know, it seems like the exude, like, why aren't they doing more to manip manipulate me and to shut things out and to keep me from reaching um, what I want to find? And it's a different with like a platform like Google, which obviously the algorithm is at the heart of it. They want to, you know, it's um, I, so this doesn't apply to every single company that's um, 
being fed up. I mean, I don't want, I, although even then with Google, they've made it much harder just to do a search for what, um, what's my, if, if, like if there's um, a personality I'm trying to follow in the news, um, but not just in the news. I want to watch, you know, like what's are the, all the new um, references to this guy on the web? Um, what's going on? Um, it's it, they made it harder just to do a date based search um, for general non news um, sources um, and uh, and made it much more along the line of what they think would be useful, you know, or and uh, it, more and more Google will put up searches that's based on that. Even if you use the quotation marks, you know, to, to think, I want this exact phrase um, that will bring up stuff that's that doesn't use that phrase. Um, and there's this again, this attempt to um, sort of substitute their judgment for mine as someone trying to research something. And again, I don't feel manipulated; I feel blocked. Um, yeah. And that's uh, that to me. I mean, that's uh, when I talk about the promise of the internet being um, uh, being overcome by dark forces. I don't mean my goodness, I thought they would only use this for Barack Obama, but apparently Donald Trump is also able to organize online. I mean, um, it used to be a lot easier to just sort of surf the web on on on, on my own direction um, with all, all these um, without all these things getting in the way. And your critiques are not helpful because they're just encouraging them to put more blockages in my way. Right, and the, yeah, it's um, and the, you know, in in terms of Curtis's themes and argument, on one hand, he you know he prefaces and and he sort of bookends the documentary with the David Graeber. Yeah. Quote about, you know, we, we forget that the world was, was something we made and we could remake it Make in a different way. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think what's, what's maybe odd about, about his work is that on one level in relation to that, um, you know, the, the purpose of it should be to um, counteract this kind of, um, pat, you know, the idea being that part of what these technologies do is create this, this sort of passive subject who who doesn't feel in control and doesn't feel like they can um, exert some kind of transformative influence on the world. Um, and I think what's what's ambiguous about some of his work is that it 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 it, it can be read in a way that um, that is um, that works in the opposite direction, right? That, yeah. that makes us feel um, subject to these dark forces. Yeah, and certainly and I, a lot of the discussion of China, I think, went mm -hmm. in that direction. And given that the, I mean, the three big sort of mainstream fears right now in terms of paranoia, um, I shouldn't say three big, because, but I mean, it's like technology, Russia, and China, right? With um, the center left tilting more towards fears of Russia and the right more towards fear of China, but that also crosses, I mean, uh, despite all the um, memes about Biden supposedly being a tool of the Chinese, I do not anticipate things moving in that direction over the next four years. Um, and that's, uh, and, and these are all, again, worth criticize, criticizing. I, I said that about the tech platforms. Obviously, the Russian and Chinese governments are both terrible in their own ways. And in particular, you know, things like the social credit system and so on in China. I, I appreciate, you know, Curtis, you know, bringing that in and, and looking at that as like a, a, as a dark model. But Although he did. He did seem to overestimate its current extent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, he, I'm, he, that, that's yeah. baked into everything I yeah, say. Yeah. About <laughs> it, but, but that's a case where I can say, yes, that's that's a villain, you know, Um but it's a, um, but there is a, where was I going with that? It, it's, um, 
you know, he had some stuff in there where um, he sort of ties it in with the opium wars and so on. And Frank DeCotter, who I might be mispronouncing his name, um, has done some really good revisionist um, historical work on actually on the Cultural Revolution, too. But on like, um, in fact, the facts about opium in China, um, going against the idea that people were enslaved to it, it was widely used as a sort of a painkiller. Um, opium dens were not like the this, this, this stereotypical, um, um, like painkiller, I mean, like sort of like before mass availability of things like aspirin, you know, um, people in, integrated it in their lives. Um, obviously, some people were addicted and had problems as there is with drinking here, but it was not something that a, a lot of that sort of old stuff had like, those sort of racist assumptions about like what the Chinese couldn't handle um and also sort of put, gave a lot of agency to the british you know i mean yes there was this conflict over um you know what there could be trade in and so on and it, but you know it, it's this this general narrative and i linked to this in one of my threads about curtis um about uh, opium in china was wrong um and so curtis has this bit in there where he's um where he says well the um the the, the sort of initially sort of presented as benign um you know, uh, committees against the suppression for the suppression of the opium trade, whatever it was called. But then it turned in this darker towards this fear that China, that they would want um, revenge. And they have, and then he moves into his yellow peril montage. Um, and I think this both misses the extent to which um, those original ideas that he says mutated into, I think he used the verb mutated into um, um, the yellow peril stuff and still had this kind of, uh, racist and imperialist um set of assumptions baked into it but but also i mean given how much he says later about both china and opioids um and he he does um he talks about um china in terms of getting us addicted to consumerism instead of opium and then he also talks about opioids in terms of the sacklers and i think there's a lot of bad narratives about that story around too um it's uh he really is replicating that in ways that even if he was trying to do it in a sort of self-aware, self-critical way, I don't think it comes across like that. Um, and it, it really, uh, this kind of gets back around to like you saying that him, um, him uh, even like when criticizing the, uh, the assumptions about technology, kind of recapitulating them too. I, I think that happens there as well, except I'm not even sure he's ultimately making that critique. Um, there are times I really kind of was wondering where he was coming from um on uh, yeah. on these issues yeah no it's it's a very ambiguous um document and it does seem i mean i i think it's you know as i think we both agreed on twitter it's uh best sort of experience more as a novel mm -hmm. um as a as a fiction um but yeah i'm i'm also uncertain going back to the theme of sort of self-awareness and kind of ironic detachment you know i'm i'm uncertain of kind of where he is with that um in terms of seeing the the seeming um you know fundamental contradictions in his project so yeah and and like you i mean like i think david graber was a really interesting um i didn't always agree with him but i think you know a fundamentally anti-authoritarian and just generally interesting intellectual and i really would have been interested in seeing curtis more seriously engage the kind of ideas that are evoked by that um by that quote that he has at the beginning and end of the documentary rather, rather than sort of leaving it vague there's also this kind of this is the other thing i'm is um 
there's this awareness in there of the extent to which, you know, people turning back to nationalism and so on, that nationalism is itself created. Um, and he talks about that again, not always entirely accurately, um, but still he talks about it in the context of the creation of the idea of old England and so on. Um, and it clearly extends in the same way to, you know, Russia or wherever other places people talk about, um, uh, you know, the national glory, the sort of pre-modern uh, ideal they want to um, restore. So he has running through this, this kind of um, nostalgia of his own for the idea of a unifying ideological project. Um, and he keeps, he's a, again, he's self-aware. He keeps showing the ways that even something that seems very ideological, I mean, idealistic, I should say, um, you know, can ha contain corruption and all this running on under the surface and so on. But there still seems to be this idea that it would be, maybe I'm misreading him, but I, that he thinks it would be good if we could have this kind of unifying um, uh, master narrative, you know, to get behind. But yeah, um, no, I think, I think that's he, absolutely really, And he associates um, that with, you know, the idea of revolution and so on. And, 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 and you can't have a revolution because you can't blah, blah, blah. And to me, it's like, I am, I'm not horrified by the idea of revolution. I think there are all sorts of contexts in which revolution is the right response. Um, it's a, uh, it's, I mean, revolt can be can be righteous um under the right circumstances but it's um i am horrified by the idea of everyone being sort of herded into the same i it reminded me of like arguments i'd have with sort of neoconservative types you know 20 years ago about national greatness like remember when that was their slogan in the national greatness conservatism and like the sort of fear that we're all um we all need to find um i geez there's a, a guy not really a neocon um i'm blanking on his name but his big thing is Mars colonization. Um, and he had written um, a book about how he could do it. And I went to this talk where he, you know, it was a scientific talk, um, but it was, um, but he had this idea that part of what he was saying was that Mars going, Mars and space exploration could be that sort of unifying thing that, that we're missing. And that so much of what's wrong with our culture is because we don't have that. And I, um, and when I sort of pushed back a little bit, you know, in conversation later, he was like, well, I guess you're probably just one of those young people. I was young back then. One of those young people who uh, who's uh, just, you know, doesn't understand what we've lost. And to me, I mean, like, um, I understand the, um, the the things that Curtis has to say about loneliness and so on. I think that individualism has to include the, and must include um the capacity to reach out to other individuals and form communities um, and be embedded in them because we're all born into them. But we all do ultimately process things as individuals with different um, different ideas about what we want in our lives. And the fact that we have all these flourishing different, um, um, the fact that there, if the big meta idea is nothing, that doesn't mean necessarily nihilism. It could mean that we have a lot of different competing um, uh, uh, ideas of, of the good life and people pursuing it in their own ways. And maybe a good society is one that helps people to pursue those different um, ideas of the good life. And, you know, there are times, I mean, he walked up to the edge with like the, the trans woman of, 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 he didn't say, I mean, he was sympathetic to her in um, sort of the struggle with that psychiatrist trying to block her, but, but then block her from, you know, having surgery and being able to uh, live as as she wanted, but the idea was like, uh, are you really kind of making an argument here about 
um, this this person isn't lonely because of the individualist and they're lonely because of the way that this class of people that she belonged to at this point in history was widely despised, you know, and greater individualism made it um, made it more possible for people like that to find others. Um, right. mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that I don't know, it, it's um, I, part of me wants to interview him and ask him about all this. And then part of me yeah. thinks it would turn into a shouting match and, um, yeah. you know. You should have him on. You yeah, like I should. better than I, I do. <laughs> well, I think this is probably a good good place to wrap up. Um, I do kind of want to ask you a, a very general question, okay. which is just, uh, I, you know, one of the, I, because I'm, I'm somewhat this way too, uh, one of the values I find in your work is, again, the historicizing quality of it and the way that it allows us to see that a lot of things that are presented as new um, in fact, are not so new. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am just wondering, you know, are there meaningful, in terms of the various themes that we've discussed, are, what are the maybe meaningful distinctions we could make about how these types of cultures exist today um, and perhaps moods exist today or styles exist today that, that would differentiate them from, say, 50 years ago? Yeah, so obviously things are globalized and connected and faster now than they were years ago. And that creates um, a much more rapid speciation (laughs) of subcultures and so on and mixing and so on. I mean, I've often, I won't get into this because I've talked about it before. And one thing I've appreciated about this conversation is I've not been going over a lot of the old ground of, of interviews, but I've pointed out how the internet didn't increase paranoia, but it did make people aware of other folks' paranoias. Um, and both in the sense that you could made it easier to work them into your own narrative. Um, and in the sense that suddenly people are aware of what other people think and think it's new and freak out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it allowed that sort of, um, again, the uh, fusionist um, style of um, conspiracy thinking precedes the internet um, uh, or the mass internet, but it really was mainstreamed, I think, or if mainstreamed isn't the right word, it became much larger and more intense because of the internet. Um, I also think, and this kind of gets back to that last bit of our conversation about sort of, um, because there's this narrative and and this kind of relates to what Curtis said about um, um, people want, you know, the, some sort of motivating force. We've lost it in the alleged age of neoliberalism that we're in and and um, hence, you know, the commit, you know, new nationalism and, and, and other things. Since a lot, a lot, I think a lot of those um, things that people are presenting as, um, as you know, alternatives to, I hate the word neoliberal, but I'll say it, you know, the neoliberal order um, are themselves just further examples of the speciation of identity within um, this order, I mean, modernity, we should say, because it precedes neoliberalism, is part of, part of modernity is producing um, nationalism. We all know that, right? Or, I mean, people who know the history of nationalism know that. And part of post-modernity, I think, is um, creating all these sort of competing nationalist ideas, um, often in weird forms like the national Bolsheviks and so on. But And um, a lot of... Um, one thing I wonder about going forward, and I don't have a prediction to offer here, but how much of what we're seeing as is that of what's being presented as you know what's going to follow the, the neoliberal era is itself just um, new computing excrescences of that era, um, and that's um, 
uh, that is, it doesn't directly answer your question of what's new, but it sort of like opens the, the question of what could be new and what yeah. is really not new um, yeah. in a way that we don't know yet. So that's right. something to watch for. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great place to leave it. So thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. Thank you.